John 19, starting in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Thus far, the reading of God's perfect and inerrant word, may he now bless to our hearts its preaching. What's the area of life where you are acting as though God is not in control? And what need is it that you have that you fear he will not take care of in his love? Since the early 1800s, God's control, sovereignty is the theological word, has been a controversial issue in the modern church, especially in America. And that makes some sense. This is the land of fierce independence. We're the ones who pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, however that works. We invented the phrase, the self-made man. The most offensive suggestion to a modern American could be that they are not in control of their own destiny. But what the Bible teaches is inescapable. You have the freedom to make meaningful choices. You are responsible for those choices. You are an important means through which your future comes to be. And, even so, you are not in control, even of your own future. From eternity past, God has willed what will be. John's record of Jesus' passion doesn't just bear out this fact. It emphasizes it. 
One pastor writes, John deploys more and more that the scripture might be fulfilled statements the closer he gets to the passion. Though all the details of the Messiah's life are a part of the Father's plan, it is especially important that we see this is the case with the passion. By contrast, I've heard it said that God controls the big things but leaves the small details under our control. But besides the logical impossibility of that, passages like this morning's say just the opposite. They refute the notion that even the small things belong ultimately to us. Every part of Jesus' passion, down to the smallest detail, occur, John says, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The Father's eternal will was to save his people. The Son's obedience to that plan, a big theme in the Gospel of John, made things happen as they did. But think about that for just a moment. Jesus' future, what he did and would do as the God-man, was in the hands of the Father's eternal plan. Jesus made meaningful choices. It says in verse 30 that he gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. He chose to give it up. Throughout his life, he had to fulfill the law on our behalf. His active, perfect obedience, obeying every one of God's commands. Yes, Jesus was responsible for his choices. What he did mattered. I think we're all very comfortable saying that Jesus is no puppet. And still, the Father's eternal decree determined even the smallest details of Jesus' life on earth. Remember what he said again and again, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And as John highlights all throughout this passage, it's not just in the big things like dying to save his people. It's in all the little details as well. The first example is the dividing of and the casting lots over Jesus' garments. This was customary at executions. The men who had to do the hard work of carrying out the execution had first dibs on the condemned man's clothes. And Jesus apparently had five articles of clothing. It would have been a belt and sandals, a head covering, an outer robe, and a seamless inner tunic. The first four could be divided among the four easily. There's four of them. But the fifth could not. And it was nice enough that they hesitated just to rip it into four pieces and keep the fabric. Instead, they cast lots for who would get the tunic. It's a minor detail, isn't it? It seems almost too trivial to include in a moment like this. Jesus is about to be crucified. He's going up on the cross in just a moment. And John is talking about a lottery for used hand-me-down clothing. But this, John adds, was to fulfill the scripture. He references a psalm of David, Psalm 22. David, as we know, was no stranger to suffering. I know many of you can identify. 
And like us, Psalms like this one, when David is in physical or emotional distress, he would use the language that was bigger than what he was experiencing to describe how he felt. So in Psalm 22, he uses the language of an execution scene to describe the way he's feeling. He writes, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. David was writing poetically the way we would say that our heart was ripped out in sorrow. He was writing this way to elaborate what one pastor calls the depth of his sense of abandonment. None of this is literally taking place in David's life. He's he's inventing the scene to make a point about how he feels, the depth of his isolation and agony. Surely you've used this kind of language before to describe how you feel in your darkest times. What David did not know was that the words, the cries of his heart were also prophetic. What he feels only inside is Christ's reality at the cross. And there are many such fulfillments. Some of the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus were very obviously prophecies from the outset. We know many of those, but Of the approximately 332 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ, many are also in this category. They had some true, meaningful connection to the original speaker. And, unbeknownst to that speaker, they would also be fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. Then there's also this category of implicit fulfillments and connections. These are the ones of which we can't be certain because the Bible doesn't tell us 100%, but they sure do make a lot of sense. And the Bible gives us some clues. These are the allusions to past moments in scripture that have meaningful connections to what's taking place now. Here, for example, when Jesus' clothing is confiscated, we have the image of Jesus disrobing and being left naked, laying aside his clothes for his execution. Verse 24 ends, so the soldiers did these things. It's a very strange thing for John to say, unless he's trying to draw extra attention to something that we would otherwise just read and pretty much skip right over. I wonder if for the hearer who knew her Bible well, when John said this, maybe her mind went to the story of Ham and of Noah. As one teacher put it, Jesus bore for us the curse of nakedness in order to deliver us from it. Surely if what Ham did to his father Noah is singled out for special mention because of its reprehensible character, then what the soldiers did when they disrobed Jesus and divided his garments should also cause us to pause with horror. Or maybe the reader hearing John tell this, who knows his Bible well, would recall just back a few chapters the foot washing scene of chapter 13. That passage, which when we studied it together, so clearly foreshadowed Jesus' humiliating and sacrificial death on the cross. 
It's not unreasonable to connect this back to that because here, as then, Jesus begins by laying aside his clothing, the shame of nakedness before the humiliation of giving himself in service for his people. Laying aside his glory in humble obedience to his Father's will. John gives plenty of direct examples as well. He's already cited Psalm 69 twice in the gospel, and he does so again here in verse 28 when Jesus says, I thirst. And we're told that the soldiers had a jar of sour wine there. That's the cheap stuff that they would have on hand just to stay hydrated throughout the workday. And when they offered some on a soaked sponge up to Jesus' lips for him to drink, they wouldn't have seen any prophetic fulfillment in it. But Jesus did. And so John says that even that is to fulfill the scripture. So also with the details just after Jesus' death. Death by crucifixion can sometimes take a long time, sometimes days. And even after death, after the person has died, the Romans might leave the body hanging up there for several more days to serve as a deterrent for other future lawbreakers. But that wasn't going to work for Jesus' Jewish antagonizers here because the Sabbath day is coming, and not just any Sabbath, the Sabbath day of Passover week. It's a big deal. And dead bodies mean defilement. And according to Deuteronomy 21, a dead body left hanging on a tree overnight could defile the whole land. They don't want any part of this. Occasionally, when the Romans wanted to hurry along a crucifixion, they would take an iron mallet, and break all of the bones of the person's legs. They did this because by breaking the bones, they prevented the person from being able to push up on that bottom spike in order to free their lungs to draw a breath. And so the person would die more quickly of suffocation because they couldn't get their lungs lifted up. That's what the Jewish authorities asked them to do here. And that's what the Jewish authorities did with the men on either side of Jesus. But when they came to him, even so quickly, they found him already dead. That is a surprisingly quick death in this context. And what does verse 36 tell us? That this was to fulfill the scripture, that none of his bones would be broken. The timing of Jesus' death, the restraint of the soldiers not to just break his legs anyway, That no bones were broken is not chance. It is in accordance with the Father's eternal decree. What the soldiers do instead is to pierce his side. And as John reports, what flows from that is blood and water. Might be what we would expect if we've read Psalm 69. We remember the prophecy in play here that just before it says they gave me vinegar to drink, it says reproach has broken my heart. Now, we think of that the way the original author meant it when he said it, the emotional experience of a broken heart. But how have we interpreted every other passage from that psalm in Jesus' crucifixion? That what was meant symbolically and emotionally for the psalmist is fulfilled literally in Jesus. And given what John sees here, he does seem to be describing Jesus' reality. Most of the time at death, your heart would simply stop 
pumping blood. And if someone stabbed you with a spear, only blood would flow out. But medical scientists now also understand that if the cause of death were a ruptured heart, a physically broken heart, the water-based serum in the pericardium would come out and would flow with blood from your side. I also, by the way, agree with the scholars who see in this the fulfillment of Zechariah 10. It gives me chills. Because Zechariah, if you remember, it's right after the chapter in Zechariah where God promises his people a future shepherd, unlike all these losers they have today, a faithful shepherd who will come and lead God's people. And what Zechariah 10 says, what it begins with is on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David to cleanse them from sin and impurity. The fountain that flowed from his side by which all who believe are cleansed. That's amazing stuff. Verse 35 is another place where if we read John carefully, we should pause. Because it's at this moment That John reminds us, one, he saw all this with his own eyes. Two, he swears he is telling the truth. And three, he saw and tells us of these things because the knowledge of these facts should promote true faith. Every detail of what happened ties together so beautifully and perfectly with what God has promised his people. Anyone who hears these facts should see and hear and believe that God will do what he said he will do. God will always do what he said he will do. And what is faith other than the belief that God will always do what he said he will do? These fulfillments, these meaningful connections are highlighted not just because they're cool for Bible jeopardy. They're highlighted to promote faith in a sovereign and powerful God by whose eternal plan all who believe can be saved. John and Jesus see in his death the fulfillment of Exodus 12, Numbers 9, Zechariah 12, dozens of Psalms. And this book, John's Gospel, remember it began after the prologue with John the Baptist testifying to what he saw. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so John interjects the narrative here, just as the man of God witnesses to God's self-revelation for the good of his people at the beginning of the book, that's what John says here, that he, the man of God, by the power of the Spirit, gives to us clarity of God's own self-revelation. Why? So that we'll believe for the good of his people. The cross is what the glory of God looks like if you have the eyes of faith to see it. It is not what we possibly could have imagined when John, seeing Jesus walking, says, Behold the lambs of God, and yet this is the most glory that the world has ever seen. This is what it looks like when an utterly sovereign and powerful God determines to save his people from their sins. But John isn't only concerned with the question, Is God sovereign. He also answers the the question, 
What difference does it make that he is? What's accomplished on the cross is clearly the most significant answer. It makes a difference because the work of which Jesus said it is finished, the giving up of his spirit, is the work that saves us. That makes a pretty big difference. The word Jesus uses to cry out is the the revelation that he has completed a significant religious task, a major responsibility before God has been fulfilled. And no doubt Jesus knew every one of the prophecies that he was bringing to fulfillment in this moment. He knew what he was doing in service to the Father's sovereign plan. He knew that he was the light come into the world. He knew that he was the good shepherd whose voice went out to his sheep and who now lays down his life for his sheep. He knew that he was the living water poured out so that those who believe would never be thirsty again. And he knew that he was the true vine, giving abundant life and fruitfulness to all who abide with him. And you know, if you think about it in the abstract for just a moment, this is what God wanted. It was a sovereign purpose and will. But it's not what everyone wanted. The Jewish leaders opposed this mission. The crowds wanted political revolution. They said his religious and moral teaching was too hard for anybody to follow. Satan was actively working to undermine this plan to save. The demons of hell are more active on earth during this period of history than any other time in human history. And the Romans put Jesus to death on a cross. And nonetheless, the Father's plan to save prevailed. So what is it you're worried about again? What is it that will separate you from the love of God in Christ? Because they tried that here. And it didn't work. All who believe can rest in a secure salvation that is planned and won by God. And that all matters, large and small, are under his sovereign control that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's quite a difference it makes. But even that is not the only difference. Because all of God's attributes work to his glory, his power and sovereignty here are joined also by many expressions of his love. There's the love he has for all of his people, the love from which he sent his son to die and save them from their sins. And to go through life knowing the magnitude of God's love for his people, us, plural, God's love for us, the church of Jesus Christ, so great that he would send his son to die. That should be more than small comfort in the darkest of times. But also, John's account emphasizes the love that God has for specific individuals, for his people as individual persons. He tells us and calls out for honor the four women who are standing near the cross. The disciples, all but John, had gone away. And these four women are standing there. And connecting what John tells us here with what's in the other Gospels, we know them to be three Marys and a Salome, John's own mother. They stayed with Jesus, near Jesus, during this dark hour. And when Jesus saw his mother... 
And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, Behold your mother. It seems clear that Jesus' biological brothers had not yet come to saving faith. I think the Gospels bear that out to this point. And so now Jesus is leaving Mary, his mother, and returning to his heavenly father. He's got a lot of big things on his plate in this moment. And one of those things is his love for his mother individually. And his love for John individually. I hope you don't miss that in this passage. He does not leave her uncared for materially or neither of them spiritually. His love for his people, even in this moment, is deeply personal. And he he comforts John and Mary by pointing them toward Christian fellowship and support of one another. Yes, Mary will have practical needs of support from John. But as each of them seeks to grow in this young faith, they will need support and godly encouragement that can only come from other believers. I have never seen a healthy grapevine that produces a single grape. I see clusters. And those who abide in the true vine do not grow alone, but in connection to others by faith. God proved his love for all people by giving his son for the sake of our sins. And he proved his love for individual people all along the way, even here, meeting their needs in unique and personal ways, So what more would God need to do to convince you of his love? And if such love rests upon you, us plural, and you personally, shouldn't it make a difference in your life? God proved his sovereignty by carrying out every single detail of this plan, large and small, to exact fulfillment of the promises he'd made to his people that the scripture might be fulfilled should be a reminder to us a kick in the pants if we have ears to hear it that God not only can do all things he has purposed but he will do them we don't serve a God who merely has good intentions for us we serve a God who is good and has unchangeably assured plans for us. So why would we worry? And what would we fear? How could we doubt or wonder? For as certainly as he brought about all of these things, so whatever he purposes will come to pass. What we've read this morning in John justifies the unflinching opening to the Heidelberg Catechism. The kids know this one. Apparently it was their lesson this morning in God's providence. And it, it comforts us even as it challenges us to live as if it's true. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me 
in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What a difference God's sovereignty has made for us and what a difference God's sovereignty should make in us.